Hey everybody! Welcome back to my channel. Thanks so much for tuning in. My name is Dana Trupiana and I cover infamous gangsters every week in a true crime-like format. My show, Mob Times, comes out every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Sometimes. Well, it's Tuesday, it's 5 p.m., so here I am. If you're new here, welcome. If you've been here before, I hope you guys already know how much I love you guys. I love interacting with you, and thank you so much for all the love and support you guys have always shown me. So, unfortunately, I couldn't get the Nicolo Shiro episode into one part, and here we are for part two. I don't really mind part one and part two so much, but I really wanted to get this into one episode. But I just have mental issues, man. I always do this where, like, I fall down a rabbit hole and I put information into the episode that the episode could probably do without, but I find this information, I'm like, oh my god, this is so important to the plotline of this episode, it needs to go in, and boom, before you know it, two episodes for each mafioso. I'm gonna do my absolute best on the next mobster to keep it down to one episode, but I don't know. Honestly, I can't make any promises. I don't know. Also, I just really wanted to complain real quick. I burnt the shit out of not one, but two of my fingers today when I was curling my hair, and I am super grumpy about it. I've been, like, super grumpy and angry about a lot lately, but I just wanted to inform you that you will be getting videos where I have an up to for at least the next few weeks while my fingers recover from these burns from the hot tools. I hope you guys like messy buns. I don't know. So let's go ahead and get into the second and final half of Nicolo Shiro, the leader of the Castellamarisi faction of the New York City Mafia, before the five official families were ever officially established. So let's break down Nicolo Shiro's approach to the Mafia game. This guy was all about playing it safe and playing it smart. He was a tried and true mustache Pete, dealing only with Sicilian immigrants. And that's fair, given his war with factions from other parts of Italy. Don't forget, he was a part of the Mafia Camorra War. So he only deals with Sicilians and... It kind of makes sense why. While some of the other mafia bosses were out there shaking hands with all sorts of gangs, Shiro was like, nah, I'm keeping it pure Sicilian. Stay out of my face if you're from anywhere else but Sicily. Leave me alone. This isolationist approach meant that he dodged the messiness and backstabbing that often came with working with outsiders. And this man was legit a master of staying under the radar. He had no flashy displays of wealth or power. He viewed that as asking for trouble. He ran his criminal operation with ninja-like discretion, leaving minimal traces for investigators to follow, and that's why he never went to jail for any significant period of time. Shiro's crew ran an underground numbers gambling racket and played hardball by using the infamous black hand and some seriously menacing protection schemes. Imagine getting this ominous letter with a menacing black handprint on it, demanding huge sums of money in exchange for your safety and the safety of your loved ones. The people who got those letters were living in constant fear of violence and revenge, 
And a lot of times they just ended up paying it because they didn't want to worry all the time and they didn't want to worry about their family and they didn't want to get hurt. Homes and businesses took a pretty significant beating for those people who weren't willing to pay up. And some of those homes and businesses were even reduced to rubble. All harsh reminders of what happens to those people who dared to cross this criminal syndicate. Shiro was kind of viewed as like the Houdini of the mafia world. And he had a knack for staying out of handcuffs. How did he do it? Well, he had a network of trusted informants and associates who would keep him in the loop about any law enforcement investigation. So, like, he had the person working at the front desk of the police station. And if they heard his name, they would call him and be like, hey, there's investigations going on into you or into any of his friends. And he just always knew what was going on in order to stay one step ahead of the authorities. He also had the huge bonus of not wanting to live this flashy life lifestyle and doing headline-grabbing crimes, so people messed with him a lot less because of that. He was also a pro at building strategic relationships outside of the mafia realm. In Williamsburg, he became really friendly with local business owners and political leaders. He even became a board member of the United Italian American Democratic Club. And a lot of times you'll see, like, the Union Siciliana, a lot of times you'll see these clubs representing the leadership of the mafia itself. It's a little weird, but you do see that sometimes. And these relationships weren't just about money. It was about mutual benefits. These relationships gave him the inside scoop into the local economy and gave him a lot of opportunities to invest and make a lot of money, but it was all about doing it together. Since he only worked with Sicilians, he really believed in becoming rich and making the people around you rich. Becoming a board member of the United Italian American Democratic Club allowed him to pull strings behind the scenes in local politics, and it allowed him to also stay on the down low. People didn't really look at him and say, oh, you're in the mafia. His name wasn't synonymous with organized crime. This web of influence that he had built made it a lot harder for cops to gather any evidence or build any kind of case against him because he had really important people protecting him. So I have mentioned the Good Killers case multiple times in this episode, and I kept saying I'm going to get to it. Well, we're going to get to the Good Killers case right now. I have gone over this in other videos before, so if you're a return viewer, if you don't want to watch this again, I do have chapters in every one of my episodes, but I am going to go through the Good Killers case because a lot of people haven't seen my old episodes, so I want everybody to know exactly what happened, who was involved, and why it's so significant for this time period. So it's August of 1921, and a seemingly ordinary barber by the name of Bartolo Fontana walks into a New York police station. He walks in, and he confesses to a gruesome murder that happened just weeks before over in New Jersey, and he committed the murder. Now, the victim in this chilling tale is Camillo Cayozzo, a guy with connections to a super tangled web of vendettas and revenge. And there's another twist. The authorities had already nabbed Salvatore Siervo, an innkeeper in New Jersey, who helped Fontana get rid of Kyoto's body. So they already have people that are involved in this crime. Fontana's confession opens up a whole new can of worms. He spills the beans on this ultra-secretive group called the Good Killers. They were influential mafia guys within the Shiro gang, 
And they all hail from the same place in Sicily, Castellamer del Golfo. Fontana claims that he offed Kyoto at their request. They made him do it. So let's get into this entire thing. The group itself, it's kind of like they just picked up the clan named the Magadino clan from Castellamer del Golfo in Sicily and moved it to America. It was made up of the Magadino clan, the Bonventre clan, and any allies of those guys that just so happened to be in America instead of Italy at the time. This is literally a Sicilian group, and all of these guys were born and raised and fully just all Sicilians. Stefano Magadino was the leader of the clan over there, but another very notable member of this clan was Gaspar Malazzo, and we're gonna go through him too. Now, there's some serious shit going on with the group in Italy, because figure, the Magadino clan, it still exists in Italy. It's just like they picked up half of them and moved them over to America. And now they have this sister group in Castellamare, and this sister group is going through it over in Italy. And the good killers end up in the same predicament as their sister group in Italy. They're in active warfare with the same group as the clan in Sicily is in. So the clan in Sicily, the Magadino clan in Sicily, is at war with another clan over there. Now that clan over there has the same thing as the Magadino clan. Half their clan picked up and moved to America. And now the good killers, who are in Shiro's group, they're all in the same predicament and they're at war with the same clan just in America. And this is where we're going to see the American good killers or the Magadino clan, however you want to state that, go to war with the U.S.-based Bucatello clan, who murdered a member of the good killers 15 years earlier. And these guys know how to hold on to a grudge. A good killers member, Bon Ventre, a baker in Brooklyn, was killed, dismembered, and his body was burned in his own bakery oven. And that sparked a U.S.-based war that would continue on for decades. This war was never going to end. On August 14, 1916, Antonino Magadino was arrested for a double homicide in Castellamare. Two of his older brothers, Pietro and Giovanni, had been murdered back in July. So only one month earlier, they had been killed. So it's not really a mystery why he would commit this double murder. While Stefano was able to avoid a lot of this violence because he's in America and his brother isn't, a lot of the family is still in Castellamare del Golfo and they're still fighting this war. And Stefano just lost two more brothers to this war. Antonino was released in 1917 when it was determined that there wasn't enough evidence to charge him with these murders. But that still means that he was arrested August 14th of 1916, and at the very earliest, I don't know exactly when he was released, but at the very earliest, he was released in January of 1917, meaning he did months in jail for this murder that they don't have any evidence on. But as I stated before, a lot of the time when people get accused of shit like this, they did it. Let's be real, he probably did it. And it makes sense why he did it, but he did it. These two murders were not even close to the end of the beef between these groups. Guys in the States got word that Camillo Cayozzo, a member of the Bucatello clan, was believed to be an accomplice in Pietro's murder. And after the murder, he fled Sicily for New York. That's the perfect situation for Stefano Magadino, who is currently in New York in Shiro's family. 
As soon as Magadino gets word that he's on his way, he starts planning Kyoto's murder. In 1921, Kyoto's dead body was found in a cove of the Shark River in New Jersey after being in America for only barely over a year. So he did not waste any time. He took care of that shit immediately. Although Fontana was only involved in the murder of Kyoto, he also informed police that the good killers were responsible for a string of other murders. He confirmed that a minimum of 15 cold cases that police had not yet been able to solve were linked to this group. As an immigrant that was living in the same neighborhood, he's just telling police things that everybody else in the neighborhood knows, but everybody else knows better than to ever say anything about it. But since Fontana is already talking to the cops, he's like, hey, fuck it, I already talked, I might as well tell you everything. And he goes on to tell them, like, every single murder that you guys don't know how to solve, that's because the good killers pulled them off. He confirmed that it was Stefano Magadino, Bartolo Di Gregorio, and Vito Bonventre that came from his neighborhood and talked him into killing Kyoto. He also gave the name of three members from Manhattan, Giuseppe Lombardi, Mariano Galante, and Francesco Puma. He says that they were all also involved in the planning of this murder. According to Fontana, he was confronted by three members of the good killers who proceeded to press the muzzle of their pistols into his stomach and told him to swear to commit these crimes or else they would blow him to pieces. Knowing that he was going to die if he didn't commit this crime, he invited Kyoto to go duck hunting with him. So now Kyoto, he knows that there's beef. He knows that Stefano Magadino is a big deal in New York, and he knows there's a kill order on him. So he's not just going off all willy-nilly and doing shit. But he doesn't look at Bartolo Fontana as a threat. He looks at him as a friend. So when they go duck hunting, the two men headed to the River Inn in Neptune City for a weekend trip. They ventured into the woods with their guns to go hunt these ducks, and Fontana just randomly put the gun to Kyoto's back and blew a hole into his back and to the side of his body. Kyoto never even saw it coming. Lombardi was at the cabin, And as Fontana discussed the body with the inn's owner, because the inn's owner knows this is going on, he knows everything that's happening, so Fontana goes to the owner and he's like, hey, I did it, we have the body, we gotta figure something out. Lombardi overhears this. And he's like, all right, bet, this dude's dead, I'm gonna leave, I'm gonna go head to New York, I'm gonna tell the gang that the deed has been done, everything is all good, finally taken care of. Fontana and the owner of the inn decided to wrap some stones around Kyoto's body and throw it into the water, but it was discovered only two weeks later by some crabbers, which is pretty stupid. Like, if you're gonna throw stones around somebody's body and put it in the water, don't put it in the water right there. Are you kidding me? Like, they didn't even, they went out like 20 feet. You don't think that body's gonna get discovered, moron? When the police requested, Fontana agreed to help the police set up a sting operation out of fear that he may be killed because, honestly, he's gonna get killed. Mafia guys kill people all the time, even if there's no sign whatsoever that they're gonna snitch, just to prevent them from maybe being a snitch in the future. Leave no witnesses. Close the circle. Like, these things are pretty normal. And Fontana is sitting there and he's like, shit, like, I did this and they're gonna kill me for it so that I can't snitch which they probably should have done because he did snitch. 
Now, remember, while he's sitting there and thinking like, oh my god, these guys are gonna kill me, he means nothing to this gang. Fontana is a 28-year-old barber, he has no criminal history, and he has no involvement in the mafia before this, at all. He immigrated to America from the same town, Castellamer del Golfo, as a child, and he had just kind of gotten roped into this murder because he was Kyoto's best friend. That's one of the most common tactics that the mafia uses, have your best friend kill you because your best friend is the only person that you're going to go and interact with when you know you have a death order on your head. You think you can trust your best friend, so even though the entire world is trying to kill you, your best friend's the only person you're going to agree to see, and then, boom, two to the head, you're dead. The police put together a plan to set up Magadino. So they tell Fontana to call Magadino, tell him that he thinks the cops are onto him and he needs some money to get out of town. Stefano Magadino goes to meet Fontana at Grand Central Station and handed over $30, thinking, I'm helping Fontana escape the city, I don't have to kill him, this is cool. But what he doesn't know is that this is all part of an epic police thing. Shortly after handing over the meager amount of money that he was willing to part with, Magadino was slapped with handcuffs and arrested by an undercover police squad. At this point, the law is closing in on Shiro's entire gang because these are the big hitters in Shiro's gang. They nabbed Vito Bonventre, Francesco Puma, Giuseppe Lombardi, and two other gangsters, all for their role in Kyoto's murder. The New Jersey prosecutor decided not to pursue any conspiracy charges in the Kyoto murder, and the charges against Magadino ended up getting dropped, despite the New York police officer's testimony about the sting linking Magadino to the murder. So in the end, only Bartolo Fontana and the three guys who helped get rid of Camillo Kyoto's body, Francesco Puma, Giuseppe Lombardi, and Salvatore Siervo, were left facing charges. The arrests that we just talked about, they're like a punch in the gut for Nicolo Shiro's criminal empire. Most of the big shots in his gang found themselves in some serious legal trouble. Bartolo Fontana, the barber with a dark secret, continued to spill the beans to the cops. He revealed a whole bunch of murders that had been linked to this super-secret good killers group. These guys, they're the A-list in Shiro's gang, or pretty much the murder inc. of their time, if you will. Francesco Puma, who was out on bail waiting for his trial, met a tragic end when he was gunned down on the streets of New York. Tragically, a seven-year-old girl got caught in the crossfire. But what about Salvatore Siervo and Giuseppe Lombardi? Well, the charges against them got dropped. As for Stefano Magadino, he decided to pack his bags and make a run for it. He sought refuge in Buffalo, New York, and as we know now, became the leader of the group there and made a huge name for himself for leading that group probably longer than anybody in Buffalo. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is a true testament to why I always tell you, never call the cops. The cops are your enemies, not your friends. They're not gonna help you with any situation. They're out to get you, not serve you. Fontana, terrified for his life, and having had his life threatened and traumatized by being forced to murder his best friend, now knows that this gang is out to get him. He goes to the cops, begging for help, and what do they do? They let the gang go. Those people that made him kill his best friend, they walk away. They're free men. And the cops detain Fontana. Fontana ends up being the only person in this entire thing to go down for the murder and spends the rest of his life in jail because he was the only one dumb enough to trust the cops. 
When they were released from jail, the whole gang knows, like, this is the end. This was way too close of a call. This is the end of the good killers. Even though they've been let out of jail, there is still cops sitting there screaming from the rooftops that they're guilty and they're out to get them. There's no other choice. They weren't even found not guilty. It's not like the double jeopardy rule applies here. Police just decided not to press charges so they can arrest them at any point and press charges whenever they feel like it. This entire crew knows that they have to disperse to dissuade the cops from doing that. Now, Nicola Shiro's criminal empire left a legacy that spanned the entire country. The Good Killers had a pretty significant part in that because the Good Killers were his A-list celebrity mafia guys, and they had to run to different points in the country because they had to get out of New York. So you'll see a lot of the Good Killers or the people of Shiro's gang all over the place because they had to flee New York. But even just people that were in his gang, they went all over the place. First up, you got Frank Lanza. He was a big deal in Shiro's gang, and after the Kyoto murder and how close every single one of them came to going down for good, he decided to pack his bags and head for the sunny west coast. There in San Francisco, he set up shop and became a mafia boss. His activities out there added another layer to an already extensive network of organized crime families across the United States. Then, of course, we've got Stefano Magadino. He had his share of legal troubles in the Big Apple, but he managed to evade the authorities and he hightailed it to Buffalo, New York, where he led the family for longer than pretty much anyone ever had. I have a whole episode on Stefano Magadino and I talk in great detail about the Good Killers murder over there as well. If you want to go over there, Magadino is a very interesting character and definitely interesting to learn about him. Another member of Shiro's gang was Gaspar Messina and he decided to take his talents to New England. Once he was there, he set up shop and became a mafia boss there. His criminal activities helped expand the reach of organized crime in that part of the country, making New England an important territory for the mafia. In April of 1921, Shiro decided to make a strategic move by welcoming Nicola Gentile into his gang. Why? Well, it was a way to shield Gentile from the influential Salvatore Di Aquila, who was the big boss in those days. He's the Capu de Tutti Capi. Di Aquila had been trying to recruit him, but Shiro was like, no, mm-mm, nope, mine. Gentile decided to go with Shiro because he had recognized that Shiro had been neutral in the war between the Morello and the Di Aquila families even though he really hadn't been so much, but Gentile's like, well, you weren't an active player, you just had one of their backs, he had the Morello gang's back, but Gentile liked that he had been kind of neutral. And Gentile did not want that smoke. He wanted to be in a family that didn't want that smoke either. Like, he did not want to be going around having wars, killing people, I talked earlier in part one about how Gentile had like gone on a recruiting mission across the country trying to fight to have other murder convictions overturned. He wanted to save lives. He just wanted to work peacefully. So he recognized in Shiro that Shiro didn't want to go to war. He didn't want to kill people. He didn't want to do violence. He just wanted to chill. And Gentile liked that. So he joined the Shiro gang. Now fast forward to July 14th, 1921, and things get a little bit messy. Giovanni Battista Dibilla, a member of the Shiro gang, got himself in a lot of trouble. Prohibition agents Izzy Einstein and Moe Smith 
busted into Dabilla's olive oil warehouse in Brooklyn, where they uncovered over $100,000 worth of whiskey and a bunch of forged permits for medicinal liquor. Because liquor during Prohibition, it's like weed was a few years ago here. You could only have it if you had a script, and those were not easy to come by. And that's not a good thing. This is not the kind of attention that Shiro's gang is looking for. The gang is pretty well known for committing a huge amount of crime, but being able to stay under the radar and not really getting caught by law enforcement very often. At this time, it's still in the Prohibition era. It had just begun, and demand for booze is through the roof. Nicolo Shiro's gang wasn't just twiddling their thumbs. Obviously, they're getting in on the action just like every other mafioso in the country. But they were a little different. They weren't just bootlegging. They were like, why stop there? They decided to add a little counterfeiting into the mix, and boy, were they good at it. In August of 1922, the Secret Service busted into a bakery on Rockaway Avenue in Brooklyn. They're walking in, they're expecting to see donuts and cookies, but they find a whole counterfeiting operation. These guys had all the gear that you need to print fake money dyes, presses, papers, and stacks and stacks of counterfeit $5, 10 and $20 bills. As they walk further into this building, they stumble upon an illegal alcohol still. This led to the arrest of Benjamin Gallo and his buddies, and that was a major hit on the Shiro gang. It put the brakes on the entire counterfeiting operation and their illegal booze-making operation, so Shiro's gang is hurting from this arrest. A new mafioso is now starting to make his way through the ranks of the Shiro family. His name is Joseph Bonanno, who would go on to become a very big member of the mafia world. Joseph Bonanno's introduction into American mafia scene was heavily influenced by Salvatore Maranzano, a heavy hitter in the mafia hierarchy and a close personal friend to Bonanno from back in Castellamare del Golfo. Maranzano was a major player in shaping Bonanno's early mafia career in organized crime. And Maranzano was a member of Shiro's gang. Vito Bonventre, who happened to be Joseph Bonanno's second cousin, managed to keep his leadership role within the Shiro gang even after getting arrested and released during the Good Killers episode. Vito Bonventre and other gang members saw the economic potential in Prohibition, so obviously they had to dip their toes into the bootlegging game. Salvatore Maranzano, who joined the Shiro Mafia clan in the mid-20s, was a key player in expanding the gang's operations. He helped to set up an extensive bootlegging operation up in Dutchess County, New York, and even dabbled in providing fake immigration and naturalization documents to Italian immigrants who were being snuck into the United States. Okay, so let's talk about Niccolo Shiro's final years. Between 1923 and 1928, he seemed pretty confident in his position as the boss of the family, even going on three trips to Europe. A mafia boss who is scared of his position as boss of the family would never dare to leave the country. They would be scared to leave their underlings up to their own devices. They would be scared that they would scheme behind their back and that they needed to have an iron tight grip on their gang at all times. But Shiro doesn't feel like that. His trips to Europe show that he was really confident in his family, in his position, and the fact that nobody was trying to make any attempts against his life. On October 10th, 1928, Salvatore di Aquila, the capo di tutti capi that Shiro had been at war with, was killed. He was killed while he was walking down the street of Avenue A in Manhattan. 
When he died, Manfredi Minio stepped up and took position of boss of that family. Joe Masseria took over as the new boss of bosses in the New York Mafia when D'Aquila was killed. With his rise to power came more demands for tribute from other Mafia clans. Now, in January of 1929, Nicolo Shiro traveled to Los Angeles for a wedding. While he was there, he tipped off San Francisco boss Frank Lanza, who used to be a member of his crew, about a Mafia plot to kidnap him. That did not sit well with Masseria. It made Masseria really freaking mad, and he demanded $10,000 from Shiro and told him that he needed to step down as boss of the Mafia family in order to save his life. After Shiro was told to step down and pay Masseria, he did pay him the $10,000, but he was told that he had to step down as boss of the family, so he just decided to leave the Mafia life behind altogether. I honestly don't really believe that it was over this $10,000 payment, though. I think it had a lot to do with Shiro seeing the writing on the wall that the Castella Marisi War was about to kick off. You've got one of his closest friends, Gaspar Malazzo, killed in Detroit. Tensions are hitting an all-time high between his faction and the Capu di Tutti Capi, Giuseppe Masseria. It seems like all the peacemakers in the Mafia are dying or leaving, and he didn't want to stick around long enough to end up dead. After he left, Masseria installed Joe Perino, brother of the right-hand man that was killed alongside Malazzo, as boss of the family. This was strictly a figurehead position, though. Everybody in the family absolutely hated this man. The entire family was rip-roaring mad that Malazzo had been killed, and Joe Perino, the brother of one of the guys that were killed, didn't really seem to care too much that his brother was killed. Considering that it was widely known that Masseria had ordered the killing of Malazzo and, by extension, Joe's brother Sasa, and now Masseria was backing him as boss of the family, that all but cemented in the family's head that Joe Perino, at the very least, knew that his brother was going to be assassinated, and at the very worst, conspired to have his brother killed. So the gang legit hates this man. They hate everything about him. They all start working together secretly, and they all get behind Maranzano, who is gearing up for the Castella Marisi war. Salvatore Maranzano had recently arrived, so Shiro knows, like, okay, I'm leaving the family in good hands. Maranzano had been a boss when he was in Sicily, so Shiro knows about his history, and he knows that he can leave it in Maranzano's hands, and the gang wouldn't just fall apart under Joe Perino. After the Malazzo murder, a lot of guys were already starting to back Maranzano, who wanted to go to all-out war, and Shiro really never wanted that. He didn't want war. He didn't want violence. He didn't want crime. He just wanted to live his life. He had just been vying for peace, and that was not going to happen coming up to this Castella Marisi war. Let's be real here. There is no way that Shiro would have lived through the Castella Marisi War. And even if he had, he 100% would have been killed in the Night of the Sicilian Vespers. He made the smartest decision that he possibly could have made by leaving for Italy, especially when he knew that everybody in his family was itching for a war on the heels of Malazzo's death, and there was absolutely no peace to be made. Shiro may have been the smartest mafioso to ever live, and the proof of that is in the fact that he did live. 
In January of 1930, he went back to his hometown in Sicily, Camporiel, in search of safety and to put some distance between the mafia in the U.S. and himself. There, he left behind a legal summons related to a housing corporation in Brooklyn, which was a reminder of his past ties to both business and organized crime. In 1934, they dedicated a memorial in Camporiel to honor the soldiers who lost their lives in World War I. Shiro played a huge part in this by gathering donations from Italian immigrants in America, showing he still had pretty strong ties to his homeland. In 1949, Shiro lost his U.S. citizenship on the request of the American consulate in Palermo, Italy. That was the thing that pretty much cut all of his ties with his life in the United States for good. Not that he had any intention whatsoever of returning, especially as he watched the violence of the Casella Marisi War unfold on the streets of New York. Nicolo Shiro passed away in Camporiel on April 29, 1957, marking the end of an era in the history of the New York Mafia. To add a little Hollywood touch, Shiro's story was even portrayed in a movie called Banano, a Godfather story, in 1999. Walter Macy played the role of Shiro. And that is going to conclude my two-part episode on Nicolo Shiro. Thanks so much for watching. Join me next week as I continue to delve into the lives and legacies of some of the most fascinating and infamous gangsters in history. Please don't forget to like, share, subscribe, follow, comment, do all the things, and I'll see you next week. Bye!